Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. And um, we're going to stand together and read verses 9 through 21. In fact, you're going to become very familiar with this text over the next few weeks. Um, you're probably going to be able to quote it. So let's stand together. Let's begin in verse chapter 9 with this description that Paul gives to us of the marks, the, the identifying characteristics of somebody who's truly a believer, of someone who is truly received of the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been redeemed out of the slave market of sin, made a child of the living God by the mercy and, and, and the, the, again, grace of our greatly loving God. He writes these words. This is the word of God, beginning in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, Give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this time holds the promise of being the most important time that we share in this week. When we sit under the preaching of your holy word and by your grace we hear Christ's voice in it. By grace we hear you speaking to our souls. Father, we live in a world with a number of different voices, all of them clamoring for our attention. We live in a world where it seems everybody wants us to believe its version of what they call the truth. And yet there is only one truth in this world. There is only one truth. And that truth is your holy word. And so I pray, Lord God, that we would approach this time in an intense desire that it would benefit our souls, and that, Lord, this time would bring great glory and praise to your name. If that's to take place, Father, I pray you must empty me of 
myself and any reliance upon any faculties that I have. And Lord, you must give me the unction of the Holy Spirit in order to speak entirely and completely in a way that is devoted and surrendered unto you. And Lord, I pray that you would answer that prayer. If it's to take place, Father, then you must move by your Spirit in our midst. And you must make hearts and minds and souls hungry and thirsty for the truth. Not just to endure a sermon, but Lord God, to hear you. You must make hearts expectant. You must make them, Father, desirous of hearing your truth. And so I pray, Lord, you would answer that prayer as well. I pray, Lord God, for your children in this room that know you by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would indeed make their love to be genuine, that you would grow them in their love for you. I pray, Father, for those perhaps who have lost their first love, that today would be a call to repentance and that that repentance would be immediate and not put off. That that repentance would be compelled by your spirit. And I pray, Lord God, for those in this room that are not in Christ. That do not know Christ as Savior and Lord. Who have not submitted their, their, their hearts, their lives to him by faith and received him as the only Savior and only Lord. God, you would so move in their hearts today that they could do nothing else. That they would be compelled by your irresistible grace to come to faith today. So please bless this time. Please make it bring forth fruit. Immediate fruit and lasting fruit, I pray. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord God, for giving us your revelation and preserving it for us to this very day. We love you. We give you all glory and honor now and forever. In Christ's name, amen. Beloved, last week, you know, we talked about how we're to approach these commands. When we come to them in the Word of God, you know, and we see these series of commands, we, we talked about how we're to approach these series of exhortations from Paul in a way that is most beneficial for us, right? Like there is a way, we said before, where you can read these and kind of skim over them and they don't really make any real impact. They don't make any real inroads into our hearts. We just kind of read them and agree with them and move on. And that does that has no benefit for our souls. Instead, we talked last week about three essential things that need to be, you know, present in our hearts as we approach this kind of word. And we talked first of all about the fact that we need to approach these commands with prayer, right? We need to approach these commands with prayer. With prayerful dependence upon the Holy Spirit to actually by his power and his strength within us to enable us to hear these commands and then to actually do them, right? Like when we read through these lists of commands, we realize there is no native strength in us. We have no native power in us to do the things that are commanded here in this word. And so he must give us the strength to obey these commands from a heart, from the heart in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. That's the first thing, right? And then second, we said, well, We need to realize that, you know, 
Our standing before God, as we approach these commandments, our standing before God is is secure. It is eternally secure, not because of us, but because of everything in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He's the one who has lived a life of perfect and wholehearted obedience to the law of God on our behalf. He's the one who gave himself up to be crucified, to accomplish our redemption by the cross and by his resurrection, so that our standing with God is secure in him, in his works, what he has accomplished that we receive by faith, right? But in realizing that, and 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 taking great thanksgiving in the fact that our salvation is secure in him, but realizing that, we also need to, to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ has put himself forward also as our example, right? That as Christians, we're to walk as he walked, right? So he's our savior, but he's also our standard. And when we look at these commands that are in, that are in Romans chapter 12 and beginning in verse 9 and following, it's that those commands, they give shape and substance to what walking like our Lord actually looks like, right? These are, are, are descriptions of the way that he walked while he was on this earth. And then the last thing we said was this, is that when we read these commands, we need to approach them with the right heart. We need to approach them as they are. They're not just suggestions from Paul. They're not Paul's opinions. They're, they're not Paul's like, okay, here's some good directives to, to have a fully maximized life. Instead, we need to realize that these are the very words of the living God, right? This is the God-breathed word of God. And so as we approach it, we need to believe what the psalmist declares is true about the word of God, that it is perfect, reviving the soul, that the word of God is sure and it makes wise the simple, that the word of God is right and it rejoices a heart that's been regenerated, right? That it is pure and it enlightens our eyes and illuminates our path. That God's word creates in us a proper fear and a proper reverence and a proper awe for him. That God's word is true, that it's altogether righteous, and that God's word is to be desired above all riches and all sensory delights because it's better and it's more valuable than anything else. And when we hear God's word, it shows us where we need to repent. It keeps us back from you know, sin as we follow the commands of the Lord and that God's word rightly received in our hearts and our minds leads us to the desire to be well-pleasing to God in our words and in our thoughts and in our actions, right? So this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to begin to work our way through these series of exhortations that Paul gives to us in a deliberate and a purposeful way. And we're going to begin this morning by considering one half of a verse. If you're doing the math, it's going to take us a while to get through these verses, right? Now, I'm not going to turn into a Puritan on you. You know, I'm not going to just preach one verse every week from here on out. That's not my intention. But this first half of verse 9, beloved, is vitally important. It is a vitally important command. Paul writes here to us, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine, right? Now, 
when we read that, there are several questions that ought to come into our minds. When he says, let love be genuine, the first question should be, well, our love for who? Our love for whom? What love are we talking about here? Who are we talking about loving in this? And that that love should be genuine. Why? Why is the emphasis on the genuineness of that love and not say the strength or the power or the joy or whatever? Why are we talking about the genuineness of love here? Why is that the emphasis? And then, moreover, why is this the first thing that Paul puts in this list of commands? Why is it in this place of primacy? Now, here's the deal. Those are all really good questions, right? Those are important questions to consider as we look at this text. So here's the deal. Let me give you some principal answers to these important questions, some initial answers to these important questions, okay? First of all, when Paul says, let love be genuine, the, the first place that a lot of theologians go, a lot of preachers go, is to speaking about love for the brothers and sisters in Christ and love for your neighbor and love for your enemy even. Like that's what we immediately think about. We think about love on a horizontal plane, right? And now certainly that is an aspect of genuine Christian love. No doubt about it. But I do not believe that that is Paul's primary emphasis in his exhortation. I don't think that's what's on his mind here. When Paul talks about our love being genuine, I take him to be speaking about, speaking primarily about our love for the Lord himself. Well, where are you getting that? Are you just pulling that out of, the, out of the thin air? Are you just conjuring that up? No, no, I'm not. I say that because the word that Paul uses here for love is, is, is the word agape, which to this point in this epistle has been used only to speak of God's love for his people and of our love for God. It hasn't been applied in the horizontal sense. In fact, there's no indication in this text that he's applying that word in a new direction, at least not in Romans. Now, it's true in other epistles that Paul writes, he uses the word agape to speak about our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But that is not what he's doing in this epistle. And we need to keep it in context, right? There's no indication here that he's applying that word in a new direction. He is going to touch on our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ in just a couple of verses, in fact. He is going to talk to us about living peaceably with our neighbors, with, 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 with people, you know, live peaceably as much as we can. He's going to talk to us about blessing our enemies later in this series of exhortations. But here, the focus is on our love for God which he's already mentioned in this epistle. Moreover, beloved, it is our love for God that energizes our love, that supplies the power for and the rationale for our love for other people. We love God and then we love those who are made in the image of God, right? Our love for others, our brothers and sisters, our neighbors, even our enemies is a fruit of our love for God. No one, no one who does not love God can possibly love others. Isn't that true? In fact, beloved, I would say to you that loving God is the first and the essential characteristic. It is the identifying mark of those who truly know 
him. It is the foundational, essential characteristic. The love of God is the decisive evidence of a renewed heart. Why do I say that? Here's why. You know what? When somebody is brought by the power of God from the darkness in the mire in the pit of sin, when they are brought, you know, from out of that, that, that pit of sin into the light of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, and they behold the glorious love of God to sinners, and they see the love of Christ to sinners, love that makes sinners his brothers and his sisters and makes them the children of the living God. Here's what happens. When someone beholds that, when they're brought by the power of God from the darkness of sin and they behold God, they see him in an infinitely different way than they ever understood him before. They see him not as judge and not as this, you know, this, this, this ogre in heaven and not this imaginary being. They see him as the God who loves. And they respond with love. We see him in an entirely different way. Before God breaks through by his love and his grace into our lives, you know, it, it's hatred or it's indifference or it's dread, whatever. But that is replaced with love for the one who has loved us so. One of the chief characteristics of a Christian is that they love God. In fact, it's the testimony of the apostle John. It's the testimony of the Apostle John. We see the love of Christ for us and we respond in love. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because he first loved us, right? We love God because God first loved us. In fact, it's the only right response to such love. It just makes sense. Paul says of Christ's love for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It is the love of Christ that should control the Christian's life, right? It's the love of Christ that should control each of our lives, right? It's the love of Christ that should inform the actions and the thoughts and the beliefs and the desires of all of our lives. Isn't that true? It should govern our hearts. Literally, it presses in on us from all sides. That's what that word controls means. It's Christ's love for us that that must lead us to, to live for him. And essential to us living for him is us loving him. Loving the triune God. Loving Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And loving Him supremely. That's why Paul can say with great gravity. I want you to hear these words now. I want you to hear these words. And don't hear them as directed at somebody else. You know, so-and-so really needs to hear 
what's being said. No, you do. You do. I do. Paul says with great gravity, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, if anyone, now listen now, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. If someone doesn't love the Lord, if there's not evidence in your life that you do, in fact, love Christ, Paul says he's accursed. He is damned. He is still in the darkness and the defilement of his sin, and he's under the wrath of God. Beloved, your affections matter. Where they are directed, it matters. What constrains and controls your life matters. It matters. Love for the Lord is the identifying mark of someone who knows Him in truth. Paul says here, love for the Lord is the identifying mark of someone who is not yet under the curse of the law, but has been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Love for the Lord The presence or the absence. I want you to hear me now. The presence or the absence of love for the Lord is a window into the current state of your soul and of its future destiny. That's what Paul's saying. Love for God is a virtue that characterizes and that defines believers. That energizes and motivates all true obedience to the Lord. That's why Paul says at the end of his letter to the Ephesians. Listen, he says in in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. With love incorruptible. That word incorruptible is a word that means without decay. Something that is undying. Something that is without end. Beloved, hear me when I say this to you. A loveless heart is a graceless heart. A loveless heart is a graceless heart. The absence of love for God is the evidence of a graceless heart. And so, it makes complete sense, doesn't it? That the very first thing that Paul would say at the headwaters, right, of all of these series of exhortations is let love be genuine. Let it be genuine. Let your love for God be genuine. Let it be sincere. Without mixture. Let it be honest. Let it be true and real. Let it be authentic and heartfelt. The word that Paul uses for genuine is a Greek word here that means without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. The root word there, hypocrites, is a word that was used in ancient Greece 
to describe the mask that was worn in plays, right? That actors would wear in plays. When Greek actors went out on the stage, depending on, you know, their character that they were playing, they would have with them a series of masks. They'd have a happy mask and a sad mask, an angry mask, you know, a a concerned mask, a, a, a confused mask, you know, serious mask, whatever. And the point of having that mask was this is that it would cover up their real face and it would mimic and simulate the emotion that that character in the play was supposed to have, right? Imagine how easy being an actor would have been in those days, right? That's pretty simple. You just go out there and you stick up a little mask every now and then, right? That'd be super easy. But here's the deal. Paul's bringing up that picture because he knows how easily love can be faked. He knows how easily it can be simulated. He knows how easily it can be put on or counterfeited or pretended. Judas did it for three and a half years, didn't he? Three and a half years. Nobody suspected him. Three and a half years. It's easy to act like you know and you love Christ without it being true. In fact, isn't that why Jesus said what he did over in Matthew chapter 7? Look at at Matthew 7. Really quickly, these words, Matthew chapter 7. Starting in verse, what, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's terrifying, isn't it? Isn't it? Those words are scary words. Somebody can know doctrine. They can have a form of religion. They can pretend to speak for God. They can sing loudly the songs of grace. They can be a moral person and express a form of gratitude for the good things that happen in his or her life, and yet they can lack genuine love for God. Paul puts this first, and rightly so, because love for the Lord is one of the essential marks of being a Christian, and it is the spiritual fountainhead for fulfilling the rest of these exhortations that he gives. Our love for the Lord's got to be genuine. It must be genuine. Or listen, we'll never authentically hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Nor will we love one another with brotherly affection. Nor will we serve one another, you know, show one another honor. Nor will we be fervent in our serving of the Lord. Nor will we be rejoicing in hope and patient in tribulation and on down the line. It's authentic love for God, authentic love for Christ that controls us and that constrains us and that moves and motivates our lives that are, that is the very source of this life that Paul is describing. 
for us. We must have a genuine love for the Lord. So here's the question. What then does it mean to love the Lord in a gen- with a genuine love? What does it mean to really love the Lord in the way that He wants to be loved by us? That He demands that we love Him? How do we love Him like that? What does that look like? Well, we can do no better than to hear the words of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He tells us very clearly what that love looks like. And I want you to look at it with me. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12 and beginning in verse 28. And see what it is that the Lord Jesus Christ says about how we are to love the Lord our God. He says, well, let me just set this up quickly. He's, he's at the end, Jesus is, of a, of a disputation with the Sadducees over what heaven's going to look like and in marriage, you know, in the afterlife. And he is approached by a Jewish scribe, right? An expert in the law. And it begins with a question. He says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. He asks a simple question, this scribe does. Comes to Jesus, he asks him, what commandment's the most important? If you were to ask people that today in most churches, you'd get a reversal of these answers. They would say, oh, to love your neighbor. It's to love the people around you. Love your neighbor, not love the Lord your God first. He gives him a very clear answer. It's, it's unequivocal. He says, first of all, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, Yahweh is one. He's one God. There's only one God. He's one in essence and in, in, in existence. He alone is God and there are no other gods. Our God is God alone. And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And we look at that, and you know what that is? That's called a comprehensive statement, isn't it? That's a pretty comprehensive statement. The command to love God with the whole of your being. Christ commands a, a personal love, a comprehensive love, an allegiance to God above all others, right? Now listen, I want, to, I want us to make sure we understand this, right? At the heart of this command is that God is a person, right? Right? He's a person. God is a person. He's not an impersonal force. He's not a collection of theological facts. He's not a worldview. He's not a system of religious thought. He's not the default position if you're not Muslim, Buddhist, whatever. He's a person. He's a person. And he's a person who rightly deserves and rightly demands the love of his people. 
Because he redeemed us at the cost of the blood of his son. You have been created. You have been recreated for just this purpose, to love God. God demands your love. He commands it. Because he's your God. Listen, he's your God by creation, right? He's your God by creation. He made you and he made you for himself. He formed you and he molded you and he shaped you for himself. And in that, he deserves his love. But more than that, he's your God by redemption, right? He's the one who in Christ redeemed you from your sinful rejection of him and your rebellion against him, the one who purchased and saved you. He's your God by redemption. He's also God of your sanctification, is he not? He's the one who powerfully transforms you into the image of his son by the application of the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, he's the God of your preservation. It's he who preserves you in faith for the day of judgment. He's the one who sustains you. He is your God from beginning to end and you belong to him and he deserves your love. And what do you mean by love? Simply stated, to love God means to delight in Him and to value Him above everyone and everything else on earth. It means to delight and to value Him above everyone and everything else on earth, including and especially yourself. We're to love God supremely. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, yeah, we were commanded to love other people. That's true. But the first commandment is this. Love the Lord your God. And notice the way that Jesus says it. We're to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, here's the deal. All of those concepts and those ideas, they, they overlap some. They are, they are not compartmentalized categories. There are some specific ideas that, that are raised by each one of them. But, but many commentators, and I would tend to agree with them, will say, this command is calling for love from the heart. And then that is described and defined by love that comes from the soul and the mind and the strength. So love from your heart's like the big category and then soul and mind and strength. Give definition to it. So what does it mean then? What does it mean then to love the Lord your God with all your heart? The heart in scriptural terms is, it's the core of who you are, okay? It's your inner being. It's what makes you, you, right? It, 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 it involves you know, what you think and how you feel, your motivations, your impulses, your passions, they all flow out of your heart. It's the very core of your being. It includes your mind and your understanding, your emotions, your will. It encompasses your soul, your mind, and your strength. It's from the heart that everything else flows, right? And so Jesus is saying, look, when to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart means to love him, first of all, personally. You can't love God by proxy. Like, it's not like, I can't have somebody else love God for me. You know what I mean? You can't have somebody else love God for you. Nobody can stand in your place and love God. Nobody can, can you know, 
fill in the gaps for you. It's a personal love. An interpersonal love for the Lord. And it's comprehensive. There's just, it's not like, you know, you can give half your heart to the Lord. You know, or a portion of your heart to the Lord. It is, it's an all-in kind of thing. Let me explain what I mean by that. You've, you've done this before, especially around Valentine's Day, when you give your significant other a card that says, All my love, right? All my heart. And you sign it, and you get them flowers. Maybe the only time of the year that you do that. If that's you, you're a dummy. But you, you, do, you, know, you do that whole thing, and you, you give them their... Imagine if you had signed... On the inside of that cart, a portion of my heart. A sliver of my heart. Now, how do you think that's going to be received? Oh, that, that warms my soul. No. No, it's not going to be like that, right? We know that. When we say to somebody, you know, all my heart in earthly terms, what we mean is, you capture my full attention. And then last is that it needs to be sincere. Sincere, the English word, comes from a Latin word, sinicera, which meant without wax. Back in the old days, you know, when they would sell pottery and stuff in the, in the you know, markets and whatnot, when you went in, there was two sets of, of pottery that you could buy. There was the set over here that was in the shade that, that was with Sarah. And then over here, on the other side that was in the sunlight, was the one that was sin Sarah. That's because in the old days, you know, just like we are, people were klutzes and they would make these clay jars and they would drop them and they would break them or they'd, a piece would chip off or whatever and they would take wax and they would, it was like, you know, that was that era's super glue. They would take wax and they'd put it in there and then they'd put the piece back in, right? And so it would look as if nothing was wrong with the jar. And so you could pay a little less for a jar that you can only keep in the shade because if you put it in the sun, right, it warms up, melts, falls apart. Or you could pay a little more for the good stuff. The idea here is this. God doesn't want to love from a heart that is mixed. A singular heart. A sincere heart. Like before everyone else, it's the Lord. He holds primacy in my life. It makes sense, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Look, we know this in the picture of marriage, right? When a man and a woman are married, when you're joined together in the covenant of marriage, no one else gets to come into that covenant, right? You don't marry a woman and have a harem of women alongside. So you hold the highest place. He holds the highest place in our hearts. And here's what that means. Practically, the idea is, look, we're to love God with everything that we are and to do so with a pure devotion and without pretense. And what that means is this. Not just say we love God and then live as if He didn't exist, but to say that we love Him and to live like that is so. And that kind of love is the one that's defined by soul, mind, and strength. When we talk about the soul, when he said, when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your soul, when we're speaking of the soul, we're talking about our emotions and our wills. We're talking about our emotion and our will. 
Let's talk about emotions first. God commands that we love him with our emotions. In other words, we got to feel something toward him. Right? It means we can't love God without, with, with some detached passivity. Right? Love for God should touch us at our deepest levels. It's something we should feel. We're to love God with all our emotional self. Now, some people will say, well, I'm not emotional and think they can get a pass. And then other people will say, well, you know, how much are we supposed to feel? While they have no problem getting excited about the wrong things. People will say, well, you can't command emotions. God does. Well, how can you get away with that? Here's why. Because God redeems our emotions so that we delight and get excited and get passionate about the right things. And one of those right things is Him. In fact, He's the chief right thing. You can't say that I love God and fail to express it, right? Love, if it's true, must find expression, right? We need to take pleasure in God. Find Him satisfying. Find Him compelling as a person. As the scripture describes him. There are some people that get really excited about theology as a discipline. Or about arguing creation against evolution. Or personal convictions. And a host of other things that we get passionate about. But apart from the person of God. You know what you're passionate about by what you speak about most. What is on your lips. What Who you like to, to, to talk about and describe and revel in. That's what you love. You might say, well, I can't control my emotions. I have no ability to control my emotions. I'm going to ask you a question. Do we, do we, do we receive that excuse from our children? When they act out and they say, I can't control my emotions. What do we do? Oh, okay. We, I understand. No, we do that today. And that's why we've got a growing mental illness among the youngest of our generations. But most normal people, when your kid says, I can't control my emotions, let me help you. Let me teach you how. Right? We say we can't control our emotions. Yes, we can. We actually can control our emotion. And the way that we control our emotions is by what we feed our emotions. Right? By what we feed. You can control what you feed your soul that leads to your affections. What we set our focus on eventually becomes our treasure. And where our treasure is, our emotions will follow. True or false? True, right? So, you know, love from the soul is a matter of renewed affections and renewed desires and a renewed, you know, a a renewed will. That's the second thing. True love is a matter of the will. It's a matter of our glad submission Our glad submission of ourselves, of our desires, and of our purposes to God. A a glad turning over of our lives to His control and His direction and His commanding. Loving the Lord says, Lord, you tell me, command of me what you want, and I will do. It's surrendering our will to the Lord, not shoehorning the Lord somewhere into our will. You follow the difference? You see the difference. Jesus doesn't stop there. Love the Lord with all your heart. That means from your soul, from your will and your emotions. And then he says, love him with all your mind. Love him with all your mind. Some people draw a false dichotomy between mind and emotions. As if you can, you can be either logical and, and, 
and discerning and um, knowledgeable and everything on one hand, or you can be loving and emotional, but you can't be both. Well, what do you do then with the Lord Jesus Christ? You can't be both. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. In fact, Jonathan Edwards said, Jonathan Edwards made the statement that intellectual life and passionate life are friends. They're not enemies. In other words, what he's saying is this, is that your mind ought to influence your emotions. What you know ought to drive your emotions, your passion for Christ and your intellect. They go together. The deepest thinkers ought to be the deepest lovers. That's the idea. So when you love him with all of your mind, what does that mean? Well, it means you love him with your intellect, the intellectual faculties that he's given to you. You, you love him with your ability to think. It involves your, your ideas and your perspectives. It, it involves your faith coming to, you know, a, a greater fruition, right? It means that we must think upon the Lord and study him and think his thoughts after him. Well, where do we find those? We find them in the word of God, right? It means to enlarge our thoughts as our understanding of him grow. We must marvel at how, how this God has revealed himself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Considering these two distinct natures in one person, we need to marvel upon the weightiness of his love that kept him on the cross bearing divine wrath. We need to marvel about the nature of his grace that condescends to sinners like you and me and brings us into his own bosom as sons and daughters. We need to spend time marveling and engaging our minds in things that matter. Can I tell you what? One of the chief things that militates against a real deep love for God is the waste that we apply our minds to. We spend more time reading fiction books than we read the Word of God. Spend more time watching movies than we do in worship. Spend more time listening to ridiculous music rather than listening to the words of music that will edify our souls. We give ourselves to the drama of this world. We love to get wrapped up in it. Instead of giving ourselves to the purity of the truth. And then we wonder why our love grows cold. But we need to attend our minds if we really want to love the Lord God. Because if we don't, our minds will be used for worthless things. What, what, is, what is the word you use, Mark? They're monkeys. What is it? Our minds are like monkeys. What is it? You can't trust them. They're like monkeys. You can't trust them. We were having this discussion the other night. We're like, what would you rather be stuck in a cage with? Monkeys or bad dogs? You know, pit bulls. If you're a pit bull fan, sorry. I, I can't go there with you. But which one would you? And all of us were like monkeys, man. Monkeys for sure. Our minds have got to be attended, beloved. We've got to take control of them. We've got to lay hold of, 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 of what we put into our minds. Real love for God is not mindless and it's not empty. And it's not just emotionalism. We love God because we know God. And we meditate upon who He is and what He's done. If we don't know who God is, if we don't really understand His Word, if we don't spend time renewing our minds, then we can never really love Him with the love that He demands. Loving God demands loyalty to His truth. I, I mentioned this a second ago. Jesus, or I referenced sort of this a second ago. Jesus speaks to the days that are coming. In fact, they are already here. He says in, in Matthew 24, verses 11 through 13, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be 
saved. Loving God means holding fast with your mind to his truth and seeking to have your thoughts and your attitudes and your opinions and your convictions shaped by it. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that the words of God are true or mostly true? Do you believe that they're true or that they're mostly true? And before you answer with the Sunday school answer, I want you to check yourself. How much of what you think or you believe is actually homespun wisdom or modern psychology? How much of what you believe is determined by majority opinion or by pragmatism and not by what Scripture says? Real love to God demands that we bring our minds under the Lordship of Christ and keep them for Him. That means being in the Word. You need a constant supply of fuel to stoke the fire for God in your mind, and that fuel is His Word. As we delight in and we meditate in everything that God is and everything that Christ is, the more our minds and our hearts will be filled with a greater knowledge of Him, and that should act as a greater fuel for our love. And then last, you need to love the Lord your God with all your strength. What does that mean? With all your strength just simply means this. It means with all of your energy. With everything that's in you, man. With all the energy that you have, all your talents, all your gifts, all your physical powers, all of them surrendered and devoted to Him for His glory. Every fiber of your being, every aspect of our lives is to be lived in light of the majesty of God and His matchless grace. It's like Paul, I'm being poured out for Christ. That's what it means to love Him with all your strength. When you take all these together, what becomes clear is this, is that the Lord is telling us to love God with everything that we are in sincerity and integrity, in the fullness of our emotions and our will, with the faithful use of our minds and with the entire energy of our being. That's the spirit of the great commandment. Everything you are. So when the Apostle Paul says to us, let your love be genuine, what he's saying is this, let your love be wholehearted. Man, let it be entire and complete without any reservation. Let it be as Christ's love was to you, is to you. The only fitting response to the Lord is to love Him with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. You don't love God to earn His love. You don't love God to earn His love. We love God not to earn His blessing or His reward either. We seek to love God with all our lives because God first loved us. That's what saved people do. It's the defining characteristic of someone who's in the kingdom. They love the one who has loved him or her from all of eternity. Genuine love for God must have concrete expression in our lives. Got to see it. So what are some concrete expressions of love for the Lord? I, I could look. There are a number of things that I could list here. I'm not going to be able to give you all of them, but I do want to give you some key ones, some key, you know, concrete expressions of love for the Lord. First of all, to love God is to worship and praise him for who he is. When Satan, remember, attempted to co-opt the Lord Jesus Christ, his worship. Do you remember how Jesus answered him in the the temptation in the wilderness? Remember how he answered him? He said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve, right? When, When Jesus 
went through Samaria and he encountered the woman at the well. Do you remember what he said to her? He said, the hour is coming and is now here when all true, true worshipers will worship this father in spirit and in truth. For the Lord is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Those who love God will worship him. It will be the pattern of their lives. Now, there are some who, because of providential circumstances, cannot worship the Lord on the Lord's day as often as others with the body of Christ. But for those who just continually treat the Lord's day as if it is of no significance, like it's any other day of the week, those people who do that and say, oh, yeah, I love Jesus, that confession falls on deaf ears with me. No, you don't. When you love somebody, you orient your life around that person. One of the very first evidences of loving the Lord is worshiping you. And you'll care about the quality of worship that you give him. Second, to love the Lord means to obey him. It means to obey him. I'm going to say it one more time. It means to obey him. You remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he described this essential mark of those who love him in John 14. He's with his disciples. He's in the upper room. He's talking to them before he departs and goes to be crucified. And to Jesus, this is an essential subject to cover before he goes to die. And he says, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Now, if he just said that once, that's enough, right? But he doesn't stop there. You know why? Because Jesus is a good preacher. And he realizes that lots of times people don't hear the first thing you say. So you got to say it again. And so he does. He says, six verses later, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Is he done? No. Two verses later. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Then he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and you'll be loved by my father and I'll love you too. And then he says, oh, by the way, if you love me, you will keep my word and my father will love you and we will come to you and we will make our abode with you. And I'm not just telling you this. My father's told me to tell you this. Now, those words are pretty straightforward, aren't they? Aren't they? There's no ambiguity there. Nobody reads that and says, what do you think Jesus said there? What does this mean to you? I always hate that type of Bible interpretation. Here, let's read a text together. Now, what does that mean to you? That's not the question. The question is, what does that mean to God? This is straightforward. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if men and women do not keep God's commandments, it's idle for them to talk about loving God. You do not love God only in words, but in deeds and in truth. Love is something that always shows itself in conduct and in action. It is not a mere sentiment. He's right. He's right. Loving God leads to keeping his commandments and not out of craven fear of punishment and not out of a sense of duty and not out of a sense of, you know, not wanting to get caught, not doing it, but rather from a sincere desire to please the Lord 
who is rich in mercy and great in love. To love God is to worship Him. To love God is to obey Him. To love God is to serve Him. Do you remember the encounter between Jesus and Peter on the shore of Galilee after Christ's resurrection? Do you remember it? When Peter goes back to fishing, remember, and, and Jesus comes by and they're out on the Sea of Galilee and they haven't ca- caught anything at all. And then Jesus shows up and says, children, have you caught anything? Nope. Cast your net on the other side. Remember? And they cast the net on the other side and all of a sudden, like the net is full of fish and it's, you know, and, and Peter's like, it's Jesus. And everybody else starts rowing to shore, not Peter, right? He dives in the water. And he swims in to the shore. And you remember they're sitting around fire. And you remember in that encounter, Jesus says to Peter three times, Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter answers, Lord, you know. You know I love you. And Jesus' response is, is to, to him is not good. I'm glad we got that settled. Is it? His response to him is what? Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Now, don't get me wrong. I know this is a unique encounter, right? But the principle stands. Jesus called Peter as the expression of his love for the Lord to use the gifts that God had given to him to serve him by serving his sheep, by serving his flock, by caring for his lambs, right? By serving his church and the cause of his kingdom. It's very practical. We can draw the line. If we love God, then we ought to demonstrate our love for the Lord by the way we serve one another in the body of Christ and serve His kingdom in this world, right? Right? Serving God is not just the job of the pastor. That's what we pay Him for. It's His job to serve Jesus as my proxy. Right? Like, this isn't feudal, you know, Europe, where you're the king and you pick some poor schlub out of the kingdom and say, all right, we got, or you're a duke, not a king, you're a duke. King says, all right, we need troops. And you're expected to go fight. And instead you just pick, well, that poor guy over there. And you bring him in and you sign him up. And he says, ah, I can't fight, but he can fight for me. I'm signing him over to you. Right? It's his job. Some people treat Christianity like that. It's the job of the preacher to entertain us on Sundays and to live the Christian life for us through the week. I'm not saying y'all. There's some, well, some of y'all, but not all y'all. Right? But there are some people that view it like that. Like it's the preacher's job to, to be, you know, Christian, Christian-y. It's what we pay him for. No, we need to do it individually. To love God is to be loyal to him above everybody else. Let me say that again. To love God means to be loyal to him above everybody else. And that's something that's easy to say. It's not so easy to do, is it? Is it? Jesus made this clear in Matthew ten thirty seven. I want you to hear this. He said, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Those are hard words, aren't they? Those are difficult words, but they're true. They're true. God must have our greatest loyalty even among, even above the members of our own blood families you might think i don't know if i can do that you may say i can't do that then jesus says you're not worthy of him love's not always smiles sometimes it's hard to love god is to refuse to love the world and what it loves if you're going to love god then you must not you cannot love the world 
the ways of the world, the mindset of the world, how the world operates. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Again, this is not a matter of just social commentary by John. This is a declaration of scriptural truth. I could go on, but to desire, to love God is to desire Him. First and foremost, Psalmist wrote in, in, in Psalm 42 verses 1 and 2, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He says, Psalm 119, one vo- Verse 114, you are my hiding place in my shield. I hope in your word. He declares, Psalm 73, 25 and 26, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Love, genuine love for the Lord is not content with cursory knowledge of God, but it longs to know him more and more. And as we'll see, you know, in a couple of weeks when I get back from Uganda, to to love God is to abhor evil and to cling to what is good. To love God is to have brotherly affection one for another. And on and on it goes. There's so much more than I can say. There are a lot of other phrases that are heaped up throughout Scripture that describe concrete expressions of love for God. Delighting in Him, taking refuge in Him, rejoicing in Him, blessing Him, taking courage in Him, holding fast to Him, trusting Him. They're all words that explain what love for God entails. But the point is clear. Before anything else, our love for God must be genuine. It's got to be real. We must love Him and seek to grow in our love for the Lord because it is the essential and defining mark of a Christian. If someone has no love for our Lord, let him be accursed. That's as plain as it gets. So let me just offer some final thoughts really quickly. First of all, I want to just say this. Beloved, loving God is not a personality type. Okay? It's not a personality type. Some people treat it like it is. Like there's introverted, extroverted, high-strung, laid-back, and God-lover. No. Okay? It's not. It's not a, it's not a personality type. Fallen men make a lot of personalities. We, we, we are big on personality types and all that stuff. Can I tell you what? The Bible's not big on personality types. I never, I don't read anywhere in scripture, you know, the whole introverted, extroverted, what's the other stuff that's in there? Intro, extro, and, and, and all this, you know, passive and, Whatever. I mean, there's a bunch of pensive or I forget. There's a bunch of different ideas, right? They're nowhere in Scripture. You know what Scripture talks about? Scripture talks in terms of love and hate. It talks in terms of obedience and disobedience. It talks in terms of the effects of the fall and the transforming power of grace. But it says very little about personality types. So loving God's not a personality type. It's a God-empowered virtue. It's a God-empowered reality in the lives of those belong to christ second i want to say this love for god needs to be cultivated right love for god needs to be cultivated 
The seeds are there, right? The first love is there as a result of God's grace. When he draws us to salvation in Christ and when we behold the greatness of his love for us to lay down his life for us and to redeem us from our sins, when we experience that grace and forgiveness, there's a joy, there's a wonder that consumes us in the seeds of love to God are like implanted in our hearts, right? But you've got to do the things that continue to cultivate an ever-growing love for God in Christ in order for your love to be fresh and continually affecting you, right? You with me? You got to do the things that make for stoking an ever-growing love for God. You know, now listen to me. Some people will use God's sovereignty as an excuse for their sin. And sometimes people, don't do this, don't you do this, use God's sovereignty as an excuse for not loving Him like they should. They'll say things like this. I've had somebody say this to me. I'm not making this up. I've had somebody say to me, well, if God wants me to love Him like that, He's going to have to change my heart if I'm going to really love Him like that. It's up to God to change my heart if that's the love that He wants. Can I tell you something? Can I tell you something? If you're a Christian, guess what? Your heart's been changed already. Your heart's been changed already. That's the essence of the new birth, isn't it? I will give you a new heart. God speaking. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You've got that new heart. Question is, what are you doing with it if you're a Christian? Last thought. People will say, you know, well, I can't, there's no way for me to love God perfectly. I can't love God perfectly. Okay. But that's not a legitimate reason to ignore that pursuit. Imagine if you tried that reasoning in marriage. How far do you think that would fly? Imagine if I sat down with Gretchen and said, honey, you know what? There's no way that I can love you in the way that you deserve, so I'm just not going to try. Boy, that'd be a happy home life, wouldn't it? Yeah, no. Certainly we can't love God perfectly. If we could, right, then we wouldn't need a Savior. Correct? Correct? I mean, nobody's ever loved God perfectly on this earth except Christ the Son. But that does not relieve us of the pursuit of loving God as His redeemed people. In fact, I love what John MacArthur has to say at this point. He says, to say that Jesus died for man's sins is to say that He died for man's hatred of God, which is the essence of all sin. Christ died for man's lack of love for God. And just, he says, as he offers forgiveness for past lack of love for God, Christ also provides for future love for God. The great forgiver is also the great enabler. And he's right. The same love and grace by which the penalty of our sins have been fully paid for is the same love and grace by which the power of the Holy Spirit can produce in us a sincere, though imperfect, love while we are yet in these bodies of flesh. Is that true? You know it is. So I'll close with these words from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, The distinguishing mark of a Christian is his confidence in the love of Christ and the yielding of his love to Christ in return. First, he says... Faith sets her seal upon the man by enabling the soul to say with the apostle, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. Then love gives the countersign and stamps upon the heart gratitude and love to Jesus in return. We love him 
because he first loved us. In those grand old ages, which are the historic period of the Christian religion, this double mark was clearly to be seen in all believers in Jesus. They were men who knew the love of Christ and rested upon it as a man leans upon a staff whose trustiness he has tried. The love which they felt toward the Lord was not a quiet emotion which they hid within themselves in the secret chamber of their souls, but one which they, uh, not one which they only spoke of in their private assemblies when they met on the first day of the week and sang hymns in honor of Christ, but it was a passion with them of such powerful and all-consuming energy that it was visible in all their actions spoke in all their common talk and looked out of their eyes even in their commonest graces. Love to Jesus was a flame which fed upon the core and the heart of their being and therefore from its own force burned its way into the outer man and then shone there. Zeal for the glory of King Jesus was the seal and the mark of all genuine Christians. Because of their dependence upon Christ's love, they dared much. And because of their love to Christ, they did much. And it is the same now. The children of God are ruled in their inmost powers by love. The love of Christ controls them. They rejoice that divine love is set upon them. They feel it shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Ghost, which has been given to them. And then by force of gratitude, they love the Savior with a pure heart, and they do it fervently. Do you love Him? Do you love Him? Do you love Him? That's the question of the day, isn't it? Isn't it? Spurgeon's right. That's the question of the day. Do you love him? Is your love for God genuine and real? Is it evident? Does it show? Is your love for the Lord a reality in your life? Are you tending that love and seeking to love him more? Love for the Lord is the essential mark. I can't say this. I could say this a thousand times. Look, love for the Lord is the essential mark of the child of God. Do you have it? Do you love him? There are some of you today in this room that if you're sitting, you're sitting here and, and, and in the way that I've described it from scripture, you have to admit and say, I do not love him like that. That is not the love that I have for the Lord. What do you do about that? Do you just continue on in a half-hearted, half-baked love? How do you handle that? The way that you should handle it is by repentance. By confessing that Christ is not your first love. And that He needs to be. There are some of you, when you hear this, and, and this is most mature Christians, you hear this and you go, I, I do, I seek to love Him like that, but there are areas that need shored up in my life. Shore them up. But there are some of you that are here this morning, and that kind of love to God is entirely foreign to you. You just, you're, it's entirely foreign to you. Like you hear this, and it's like, you know, how, how can I love somebody I've never seen? Before you can love him, you need to first receive his love. You need to first receive his love. Have you? Not are you striving to make yourself acceptable to God. Not are you working really hard to be a good church person. Not are you working really hard, you know, look, I, I, I've come to church and I'm, I'm trying to be perfect in my church attendance. And I'm, I mean, good for you. Do that. But that's not meritorious with God. That doesn't save anybody. Have you received his love? And this is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Have you received the love of God, which is the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life and a new hope, a deliverance from condemnation, deliverance out of this world and unto the Lord God as your father and you has his son or his daughter. Here's the truth about you. The truth about you is this, is that apart from Christ, you are a sinner in absolute rebellion and and rejection of God and that you are deserving of eternal wrath and that if you die in that condition, unreconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, not at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, it is true, you will be condemned and you will die and you will suffer an eternity of God's wrath in hell forever it's what you deserve it's what you earned it's what if god left us all to ourselves that's exactly what everybody would get but the good news is this is that god so loved sinners that he sent his only son into this world to live the life that you could never live to live the life that you didn't want to live to live a life of absolute sinless perfection before the face of the almighty god to live a life of obedience to the law in spirit and not just in letter to do on your behalf what you could never do which is to live a life that was fully pleasing to almighty god completely sinless totally perfect earning a righteousness for you that you could never earn And then at the appointed time, he gave himself up to be arrested. He gave himself up to be turned over by the Jews to the Romans to be crucified, to be put to death, to physically die on the cross. But while he hung upon the cross, God Almighty put upon him the sins of every single person who would ever believe in him, who would ever receive Christ as Savior and Lord. He put the guilt and the shame and the stain and the degradation of sin upon the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he suffered the wrath of God for every single one of them. Every one of them. So that God's justice could be satisfied. So that sin would be paid for, and so that those who were sinners and who would confess their sin to God and repent of it and turn away from it and hate it and embrace Jesus Christ as the one who lived the life for them that they needed to live and died the death that they deserved and rose again on the third day that they might be saved. And that because God is great in love, Scripture says, and rich in mercy. If you're not in Christ, this love for God sounds foreign. And it's because it will be until you receive the love of God in Christ to you. And so I would encourage you to today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we turn to you in earnest expectation, Father God, that you will move in our hearts and move in our souls in the way that is most beneficial for us. Father, I pray that for all of us that are in this room, Lord God, who are truly in Christ, for those perhaps whose love is growing cold and who need to repent, and those, Lord God, who are seeking to love you but still know there are areas that need shored up, that, Lord God, you would show that to us and that you would move us, Lord God, not just to do things but to love you. And I pray, Lord God, for those that are in this room that don't know Christ, I pray that you'd give them grace, their eyes would be opened, and they would come to Jesus in faith this morning. I pray you'd bless this time, Lord God as we respond to your holy word. Help us to do it in sincerity and in truth, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.